Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are Locked On Mets. Your daily New York Mets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hello to all you amazing Mets fans. You're listening to Locked On Mets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. To get this show every day, I need you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to tell your sport device to play podcast Locked On Mets. Now, on today's show, I'm going to talk about the 2000 National League Champion New York Mets. In the first half, I'm going to go through the regular season and some of the storylines we saw there. Then later on in the second half of the show, going to talk about their series in the NLDS against the San Francisco Giants. On Monday, I will close out this series talking about the Mets winning in the NLCS and then their eventual Subway Series World Series against the New York Yankees. Before we get to any of that, though, I'm your host, Ryan Finkelstein. If you want to find any of my work, check me out on Twitter at FinkelsteinRyan. You can also find some of my writing about the Mets at MetsmerizedOnline.com. So going through this regular season, of course, it's important to note that the Mets had made the playoffs the year prior in 1999. When you listen to my conversation with Brian Wright, we of course alluded to all this throughout, but... In 1999, the Mets win 97 games. They finished second to the Braves that year in the division, win the wild card, beat the Diamondbacks in four games in the NLDS, then eventually lose to the Braves in the NLCS in six games. 2000 rolls around. The Mets are supposed to be the team to really once again go at the Braves in the division. They end up playing the first game ever held outside of North America, on opening day on March 29th as part of the Tokyo Series in the Tokyo Dome against the Chicago Cubs. They lose that game, and whether it was jet lag or whatever else you wanted to kind of call on as an excuse, the Mets did not start off that season great. They went 5-7 and seven through 12 games. Then they began to show their potential. On April 16th through April 25th, the Mets reeled off nine straight wins, outscoring their opponents 67-43 to across that stretch. That included a game against the Chicago Cubs where they got a little bit of revenge for what happened in Tokyo, scoring 15 runs against them. Now, scoring double digits was a big part of what made that Mets team great. They dropped 25 double-digit efforts throughout the season, of course winning all 25 of those games. And it was part of the steroid era where runs were aplenty around the league. If you go back to 2000, the league average run scored was 5.14 runs scored per game. You could say that's all home runs, right? It just more shows how great 
the offense was across the board. Last season, in 2019, everyone says that baseball is juiced. Home runs have never been flying out faster. And run production, you would think, would be at an all-time high. In 2000, like I said, league average was 5.14 runs scored per game. Last year, in 2019, it was 4.83 runs scored per game. You want to compare the home runs? League average in 2000 was 190 home runs per team. Last year, it was 226 home runs per team. Last season, all but six teams eclipsed 200 home runs. In 2000, only 11 out of 30 teams eclipsed 200 home runs, and the Mets were that 11 team hitting exactly 200. Now, going back to that nine-game winning streak, you might have thought that was kind of the turning point to the Mets season, but they went on another rough stretch right after it, dropping nine of their next 12. You fast forward to May 16th, and the Mets lost a game that put them at 500 with a record of 20 and 20 through 40 games. That was the turning point through 40. Because from that point on, they never fell back to 500 again. The Mets went 16 and 8 through June, finishing the month of June with a 45 and 32 record overall. They played about 500 in July, going 14 and 13. Then they really won the wild card and kind of clinched their playoff berth, though that came later. But what separated them from the rest of the National League was a fantastic August that saw the Mets go 20 and 9. And what was really incredible looking back at that month is that they only had a plus 13 run differential. Seven games that they won that month were by a single run margin, and seven more were won when the margin was between two or three runs. That obviously is the makings of a good team when you can win those close games, and you need a dominant closer to do that. Armando Benitez saved 11 games in August and was lights out. In fact, from July 1st through August, Benitez allowed a single run in 26 and a third innings pitch while racking up 41 strikeouts. He was 18 for 18 in save opportunities across that stretch. He saved 41 games throughout the whole season, setting a Mets record, breaking John Franco's mark of 38 from two years prior in 1998. Now, Benitez later went on and broke that record himself saving 43 games the following season. Jaris Familia matched that record in 2015 when the Mets went to the World Series. Then the next year when the Mets once again went to the playoffs, Familia saved 51 games. Going back to the 2000 Mets, however, you had them at that point going into September, even with the Braves in first place in the NL East. They had their chance to win that division, and they really did not come up that short, the Braves only edged them out by a single game, but the Mets did not play the best of baseball in that pennant race at the end. They went 15 and 14 to close out the season. Luckily for them, the closest wild card team at the time going into the month of September was the Diamondbacks. They were five and a half games back. They went eight and 18 to close out their season, and by the end of the regular season, there was four obvious and clear-cut playoff teams. You had the Mets and the Braves, who, like I said, finished one game apart, with the Mets being the wild-card team. Then you had the Cardinals and the Giants being the other two playoff teams. The Dodgers were the next closest in the wild-card, and they finished eight games behind the Mets. 
Going into the playoffs, though, the Mets knew they were going to have to face the San Francisco Giants. And the San Francisco Giants closed the year on a 22-9 run. It was Barry Bonds, it was Jeff Kent, and the Mets had their handful. Talk about that in just a second. Looking at the 2000 San Francisco Giants, it was, of course, Barry Bonds in his heyday, one of the best players who's ever played a game of baseball, even at 35 years old. This guy was hitting incredible 49 home runs, 106 RBIs. Obviously, steroid question marks, all that stuff can get attached to Barry Bonds, but who knows who was or wasn't using steroids at that time. What we do know is that Barry Bonds was always one of the most dominant players in the game. He hit 306 that year with a 440 on base percentage, a 688 slugging percentage, good for an OPS of 1,127. His OPS plus, which is one of those stats I talk about comparing hitters based on a league average of 100, was a ridiculous 188. They actually had two other hitters, though, that were very close to Barry's level. You had Jeff Kent, who was just insane that year. 33 home runs, 41 doubles, 7 triples, 125 RBIs, batted 334 with a 424 on base percentage and a 596 slugging percentage, OPS plus of 162, and Ellis Burks, who had an OPS of 163, who batted 344 with a 419 on base percentage and a 606 slugging percentage, 24 home runs, 96 RBIs. You gotta love the cartoonish numbers of the early 2000s in the late 1990s. So it was an offensive juggernaut that the Mets were going up against. Even with that, though, the Giants never scored more than five runs against the Mets in that entire series. And those five runs did come in game one as LeVon Hernandez really did a great job holding the Mets down, only allowing one run for the Giants. Hampton was pitching for the Mets. He did not fare as well. Gave up an RBI hit to Jeff Kent in the first inning. Then in the third inning, allowed four runs, including a three-run home run hit by the formerly mentioned Ellis Burks. The Mets lost that game 5-1. to one. And they started to have their backs up against the wall a little bit. From that point on, though, it was all Mets. Game two, the Mets got off to an early lead, scoring two runs on a Timo Perez single in the second inning. Jeff Kent and Ellis Burks once again factored in for a run as Jeff Kent had a leadoff single and was scored on a Burks double in that second inning. The Mets had a one-run lead that basically held All the way throughout the game, Al Leiter pitched fantastic in that game. Ninth inning comes around, and Gardo Alfonso hits a two-run homer to give the Mets a 4-1 lead. And then Armando Benitez, who came back down to earth with an ERA over four to close out the season after that great July and August, ends up faltering. He gives up three runs and completely blows the lead, with JT Snow being the one that hit a towering through run homer. 
Luckily for the Mets in the 10th inning, rookie Jay Payton had an RBI hit, which gave the Mets a lead. And then John Franco came in the bottom of the 10th inning. And I think Brian Wright alluded to this. If I'm not mistaken, in our episode about the all-time pitchers a couple weeks back, he alluded to this at bat where John Franco was on the mound. Barry Bonds was at the plate. The tying run was on. And with two outs, he struck out Barry Bonds on a wicked 3-2 changeup that gave the Mets the victory they needed. They tied the series up, heading back to New York. Game three once again went to extra innings. The Giants scored two runs in the fourth inning, and Giants starting pitcher Russ Ortiz had a no-hitter going into the sixth. In that sixth inning, though, the Mets were able to get on the board. After a walk and a single, Timo Perez came up and got a base hit, which scored a run, getting the Mets on the board. In the eighth inning, the Mets were down 2-1 to one still. Pinch hitter Lenny Harris barely beat out what could have been an inning-ending double play off of Doug Henry. The Giants bring in closer Rob Nen, who had not blown a save since July, to face Edgardo Alfonso and try to get the four-out save. Fonzie delivered, ripping a double into the left-field corner that scored Harris and tied the game, which eventually forced extra innings. And the Mets fans will remember, in the bottom of the 13th inning, Fan favorite Benny Agbayani came up and hit a home run into the left field bleachers that gave the Mets the lead in the series. Game four was also played in New York and an unlikely hero delivered for the Mets. Fourth starter Bobby Jones came through and completely shut down one of the most potent lineups that was constructed during that time. And the Giants. He hurled a incredible one hit shutout that shocked the world with his 85 mile per hour fastball and 65 mile per hour curveballs that just somehow stunned the Giants hitters all night long. Rob Ventura got the Mets on the board early with a two run homer in the first inning. In the fifth inning, Eduardo Alfonso came through with a two run double. But those runs were not needed as Jones went the distance. And after the game, Mets announcer Bob Murphy said that the Mets have never had a better ball game pitched in their 39-year history. We are talking about the same team that had Tom Seaver, Doc Gooden, Jerry Kuzman, Matlack, Ron Darling, all these great pitchers who had worn the blue and orange, and even on that team with Al Leiter and Mike Hampton, who was great that year, although the playoffs maybe not as much. But still, of all those guys, it was Bobby Jones that delivered from the Mets. That one hitter set a Mets record for the fewest hits allowed in a postseason complete game, beating John Matlack's two-hitter in the 1973 NLCS. It was also the fewest hits allowed in in a lead division series complete game until 2010 when at the time Mets rival and now Hall of Famer Roy Holiday pitched a no-hitter for the Philadelphia Phillies. So just a great series for the Mets to come in, beat the Giants who were heavily favored. The Giants finished 
with the best record in the National League that year, were red hot, had a ton of Hall of Fame talent, and Barry Bonds, who, like you can say, steroids are not Hall of Fame talent, of course. Jeff Catt, in my opinion, gets overlooked in the Hall of Fame. I don't think he really has the same steroid ties as some of the other people, and he has some of the best numbers ever for a second baseman, of course, a former Met. Those two guys, some of the other roided-up monsters on that Giants team, and the Mets were able to prove victorious off the arm of good old Bobby Jones. Next week on Monday's show, again, going to talk about the NLCS, where the Mets faced off against the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals, of course, did the Mets' dirty work for them, beating the Atlanta Braves in the other NLDS series, dropping 24 runs in the clinching Game 3. So I'll get into that series and the World Series on Monday's show. And then for the rest of the week, what we're doing throughout the Locked On Podcast Network is going through some of the best moments of the 2019 season. So we'll go back, we'll talk about Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, Jacob DeGrom, and that fun run the Mets had just a year ago. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Mets.